0: Kia ora and welcome to Te a Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. During the lockdown, academics from the university's law faculty got together online to discuss the legal implications of the New Zealand government's response so far to COVID-19.
1: Tēnā koutou katoa, everyone. Um, welcome to what might be the first of a series of web stage zoom casts from the Faculty of Law at Victoria University of Wellington along with a number of colleagues I've been really interested in the way things have developed in terms of the legal situation and what we aim to do here is to give a basic introduction really to the way we've been thinking about what the government has done from a legal perspective in the last month or so so just to introduce myself before we go any further my name is Jeff McLean, professor of law at the faculty and my past life, I was a law commissioner and I have a particular interest in legislative design and I have particular interest in relation to the way the government has gone about thinking about how it it needed to use the law to achieve its public health goals in the COVID-19 crisis. What we're going to do today is to go through a series of um, very short presentations from my colleagues. Um, With me today, in the order they're going to speak, is is Dr. Professor Colin Rios. Joel is an expert in in comparative constitutional law. He's going to talk about some of the constitutional debates in the the wider jurisprudential world. Then we're going to have Dr Dean Knight, who's an Associate Professor in the Faculty, who will talk about the particular instruments that the government has used in its response to COVID-19. Then my colleague, Dr Nessa Lynch, who's an Associate Professor and an expert in child justice and youth justice law in in New Zealand, as well as internationally, we'll talk about some of the criminal law aspects. My colleague, Dr. Martian Bechter will talk then about privacy implications and then we'll round off with my last but not least colleague, Dr. Eddie Clark, who's an expert in administrative law, who will talk about some of the, the underpinnings really of what the government's done in terms of consultation and in terms of public accountability. But that's probably enough from me. What I will do is now is hand over to to Joel, who will talk about some of the more comparative jurisprudential
2: ideas that are in play here. Joel. Thanks very much, um, Jeff. Um, Thanks very much, really, for this opportunity, um, because this is a topic that has long interested me, particularly because emergencies, in a way, um, raise a very interesting question about um, about law itself and the relationship between law and power Um, and emergencies are in a certain way um, outside of the law but at the same time they seek to be or the law seeks to regulate them and in a way this is what i want to do today to talk a little bit about the concept of a state of emergency from from the perspective of constitutional law but also from the perspective of constitutional theory and then offer some thoughts about this particular emergency. And through my discussion, I will pay particular attention to the way in which emergencies are, are, um, or or make reference to the ways in which emergencies are regulated by different constitutional orders. So um, from a legal point of view, a state of emergency can be described as a situation where the suspension of certain constitutional rules is temporarily authorized by law. For example, it could be that during a state of emergency, certain rights are explicitly restricted, or that during a state of emergency, a branch of government becomes able to exercise powers that normally fall under the jurisdiction of a different branch of government, or that certain state officials are armed with powers that go beyond their ordinary jurisdiction. And then when, when we think about emergencies in this way, a key question that arises is, why would a constitution authorize the temporary suspension of some of its more, most important rules? And the answer I think is simply that the constitution is seeking to protect itself. That is to say the purpose of a state of emergency is to protect the constitutional order from a serious threat. And here the reference to protecting the constitutional order does not simply mean that we want to protect certain rules that are part of the constitution, but that that we want to protect the very mode of existence of the political community. Since the times of the Roman Republic, states of emergency have been generally understood in this way. And this understanding comes accompanied by at least three limits. I already made reference to the first limit, the idea that emergency powers only exist or only can be exercised for a limited amount of time, that is the time that is considered necessary to address the emergency. The second limit is that since the purpose of an emergency or or since the purpose of emergency powers is to protect the constitutional order, they cannot be used to change or to alter the constitution itself. These two limits are reflected in the provisions of written constitutions that seek to regulate emergency powers. So, for example, in addition to establishing who can declare a state of emergency, which is usually the head of government or parliament or a combination of both, written constitutions in different countries often establish that they cannot be amended during a state of emergency. Others create explicit and strict time limits on the duration of a state of emergency, and some require super uh, parliamentary super for an extension of the relevant period. Now, since n- not all emergencies are the same, that is, not all emergencies present the same kind of threat to the constitutional order, some constitutions distinguish between things such as states of alarm, states of siege, states of exception, or states of danger. And the idea is that depending on the seriousness of the emergency at issue, those constitutions then authorized different special powers, So for example, a natural disaster would not normally trigger the same type of extraordinary powers as a threat of an external invasion um, would. And that kind of approach reflects the third limit that I wanted to mention today, that is to say that emergency powers must be proportional to the nature of the emergency. So if one wants to protect or to restore the constitutional order, one must violate it only to the extent necessary to achieve that goal. To ensure that these three limits are respected, some written constitutions allow courts to review the validity of an emergency declaration, that is, whether there was an emergency in the first place, and also whether the powers claimed are proportional, whether an extension to the emergency period is um, justified, and so on. Naturally, in the context of an unwritten constitution like that of New Zealand, states of emergency take a different form. In the English, constitutional tradition, one of the most famous statements on the subject of emergencies is found in John Locke's chapter on the prerogative on his second treatise, where he maintained that in some situations, that is to say in emergencies, for example, it was often necessary, and I I quote, to act according to discretion for the public good without the prescription of the law, and sometimes even against it. Now, there is an interesting academic debate about exactly what Locke meant by that. But the fact is that nowadays, emergency powers under unwritten constitutions, as well as in the context of unwritten of written constitutions, are not exercised against the law. But for example, through statutes that authorize the declaration of a state of emergency and give extraordinary powers to some officials, like the Civil Defense Emergency Management Act 2002 here in New Zealand or through the adoption of special statutes that deal with particular emergencies, as New Zealand did after the Christchurch earthquakes and as the UK did recently with respect to the coronavirus pandemic, or through the unprecedented exercise of special powers under all statutes, such as the powers currently exercised in New Zealand under the Health Act 1956, or sometimes through a combination of all these approaches. But the point is that as long as the exercise of the relevant emergency powers is temporal, proportional, and does not become normalized, that is, does not result in a permanent change to the unwritten constitution, it would be consistent with the limits that I previously mentioned, and therefore fall within the scope of what would be normally understood as a legitimate exercise of emergency powers. I want to close with a final reflection about the nature of this emergency. Epidemics and pandemics are not entirely absent from past discussions about states of emergency. And in fact, they are explicitly mentioned in some written constitutions and and statutes as reasons that may justify the declaration of an emergency. However, states of emergency have traditionally been associated with other things, such as terrorism, um, war, rebellions, or just political activities that directly threaten the constitutional order or the mode of existence of the political community here what we have here in the coronavirus situation is a global public health emergency and the interesting thing is that the measures required to deal with it are so extreme that if they had been adopted in the context of like a traditional emergency like the threat of political revolution for example they would they would have probably been seen as as a dramatic act of political repression. So think, for example, about what has been happening around the world in these few weeks. In the last few weeks, state officials, um, including here in New Zealand, are being empowered to force individuals to stay home for weeks or for months and to refrain from having any significant contact or in-person communication with other individuals. This involves, I think, not simply the limitation of some rights. But probably their suspension, that is to say the suspension of a number of civil and political rights, such as freedom of movement in particular, but perhaps also freedom of association, and also the limitation of other rights like freedom of religion, the right to work, the right to family life, and so on. Um, This would be in a different context, the dream scenario of a authoritarian government. Um, People are even happily reporting their neighbors for getting too close to each other. And this has been reported um, in different um, newspapers around the world. Um, Now, now these, these rules, these lockdown rules, are not only extreme, but sometimes even impossible to enforce. In fact, some of them may be so ambiguous that one may ask whether they are rules at all. And yet, in this context, in the context that we find ourselves, at least at first sight, all this seems proportional, reasonable, and necessary. And that is just, I think, an indication of the, of the strange situation in which we find ourselves. Another indication, and, and with this I will finish, is the fact that in New Zealand and elsewhere, the emergency measures that are being adopted are not only changing the way we exist as a political community in the present, but may in fact have the effect of changing the ways in which we relate to each other for the foreseeable future and long after the emergency passes. So in a way, the emergency powers that are being exercised around the world today may not simply restore normality, take us back to the way we were, but result in a a transition towards a new form of political existence. And that is quite remarkable from the perspective of the traditional conception of a state of emergency. Thanks very much.
1: Right, thanks, Joel. Um, Joel's talked from a very general perspective, and he talked about some of the particular rules we've all been living under as being somewhat ambiguous. Um, Dean is going to talk about those particular rules, and he may well make some comment about some of the more ambiguous or what we might call in academic context open-textured nature of some of these um, rules under which we have been trying all to live. So, Dean?
3: Uh, kia ora, Geoff, and and, and thanks, Joel, for um, setting the scene so well. I, and, and I guess I come to COVID-19 and look at it as probably the the biggest public law challenge of the decade, if not of our generation. So, signalled I'm I'm interested in the sort of the authorisation for what's being done, how it's been deployed by the government. So, very much the legal framework. And when we look at the legal framework, it's it's clear it's made up of, of various layers of power of action. And within those layers, I think what we're seeing is very much a rolling mall. So forgive the rugby metaphor, but a rolling mall as things evolve and change over time in terms of the way that the government is shaping the um, the alert levels and the um, management of people within and businesses within that. And and so what I'm going to do is I want to set out those layers, speak generally about the the different aspects of the rolling wall we've seen so far and, and and along the way, and just to close, just highlighting some of the soft spots, if you like, that have raised a few eyebrows. So if we start with our sort of emergency triggers, picking up on what Joel was saying in terms of our enter, entering into our emergency, we have two key bits of legislation, the Epidemic Preparedness Act, um, and the Civil Defence Emergency Management Act. Now, that Epidemic Preparedness Act, we know that on 25th of March, we had the notice issued to declare the epidemic and the emergency. And that enlivened very special powers uh, amongst uh, officials, uh, critically activated some of the the dormant emergency provisions of the legislation. that have been sitting there sleeping in things like the Social Security Act and things like that, that allowed more discretionary approaches to, to uh, different regimes. And thirdly, and importantly, it allowed the government to modify legislation through the Henry VIII um, Order. So um, secondary legislation that that amends primary legislation. And surprisingly, we don't have much to say on that because we haven't seen it used that that much so far. Um, It's only been used in a handful of provisions so far. But that's the first layer of emergency uh, legislation that is being used by government. The second one is the Civil defense Emergency Management act, and this is seen as being the all hazards um, uh, emergency legislation doing a range of things we know in terms of uh, flooding and um, earthquakes and like, but also for um pandemics and epidemics and that that gives certain powers to the uh, of coordination to the the, the controller. Um, civil defence um, controller, and also enlivened special powers for, for constables. And it's interesting to see that one very much sitting in the background and only being used in a residual way, some requisition powers by the, from the controller for some premises and things like that, possibly some some of the powers being relied on by constables. And there's a question mark for us about whether that all hazards type um, legislation actually speaks to the current crisis and, 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 and emergency we've got now. The most curious thing though is, is is the lack of reliance on those sort of generic emergency powers but resort to ordinary legislation and action. And most of the work, almost all the work being done by the government is being done under the Health Act and uh, the D- Director General of Health as medical officer of health for the entire country. And he has various and, and very significant powers to manage infectious diseases. And the preference seems to be to locate the power and the source of government authority within this framework, and not rely on some of the you know the um, the more nuclear options elsewhere uh, in in the other emergency powers. And I'm going to come back and talk to how the uh, director general has used the section 70 uh, orders within the Health Act. But before I sort of leave the the, the context setting of the powers, I don't think we can ignore, ignore the the daily uh press conferences from the prime minister and the director general and others because it's clear that what's going on in new zealand is that a lot of weight is being put on the signals from the pm the nudges the charisma the sense the call to action to do the right thing by the prime minister and and the way that's proved very effective in creating a climate which is um, managing the uh the emergency that type of thing is not Specifically mandated by legislation for the Prime Minister, but it's, it's something they do. And and I think we'll reflect on the role that, um, particularly, the Prime Minister has played in, in as I say, calling Kiwis to uh, stay at home, save lives, and so forth. So that's sort of the, 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 the layers within the framework. What's the raw rolling more we've seen? Well, in the early days before we had lockdown, it was a very individualized response and, and specific Section Order Power Section 70 order powers under the Health Act were used to direct people to go into quarantine or as necessary for um, big gatherings to, to, to be closed. Um, it seems so long ago we were in that state of affairs, but it's not that long ago. The gear shift came with our lockdown, and I see this as having two phases, a first generation and a second generation. The first generation is those first uh, 10 days where you might recall there was a order issued by the Director-General under Section 71M of the Health Act uh, closing premises, subject to some exceptions, and requiring social distancing. Uh, and so that was really the key legal mechanism used to instigate the first 10 days of the lockdown. close those premises, subject to... The ability of uh, essential businesses and some other civic institutions to operate and requiring and directing people to when they're out to socially distance that was then backed up by a big fat degree of constabulary direct uh, discretion to direct people to behave or um, respect or honor the, the 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 signals coming from the p- pm um, and if necessary to arrest people if they didn't heavy reliance education rather than enforcement and might come back to the reasons for that uh, shortly but not heavily used at that point point. 10 days in we got the second section 70 notice that applied across the board uh, which um, augmented that uh, earlier order but provided for universal isolation and uh, but provided an exception for essential personal movement um, and so forth and and, and that very much strengthened and tightened and sharpened the approach to the, to the lockdown there. Since then, we've seen the Section 70 power used also for at the border for a stricter quarantine or managed quarantine as well. Uh, so that's sort of the, 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 the different phases we've seen so far. What do we make of that sketch of, of the use of those powers, of that rolling more? Well, I think we can see an escalating response and a crystallisation and hardening of the rules. In those early days, that generation one, I um, I think we saw troubling reliance on uh, a lot of discretion on the part of um, uh, constables to, to educate, direct and, and possibly enforce. And also probably over-reliance on prime ministerial guidance, if you like, uh, which a lot of people were interpreting as as rules when they probably weren't rules. Because that, if we think of the, the rule of law and, and, and in Razian or Fulia in terms... We can the rule of law favours promulgated rules, transparent rules, clear and stable rules, and, and we've got instances where there, there there wasn't that clarity or that there was some changeability, and and some of the executive ministers own um, fell into the traps of some of those that that ambiguity as well. Importantly, we also expect congruence between, and the rule of law also expects congruence. That is, the law on the box should be the law that is applied in actions, and question marks about that because. That that first generation was probably suboptimal. There was a blurring between the rules and guidance, uncertainty, uh, and there was there was particularly potentially some question marks about whether the the police had the power or the authority to enforce uh, some of the expectation. There were limited hard rules in play, and the threshold for that independent discretion. Uh, on the part of the the, the constables, had a pretty high threshold. And I think that may have fed into some of that police reluctance to take a very heavy-handed approach. And of course, when we're talking discretion, it goes without saying there's the potential for it to be misused or abused and and concerns expressed about discrimination, unconscious bias and the like. But then we had the, the, the Generation 2 rules after the first 10 days. In many respects those rules were sharpened and it addressed a lot of those Valerian sort of rule of law concerns. I think the concern, the thing that raised eyebrows in in, in the issue of the second uh, notice under um, Section 71F of the Health Act was the legal hook being relied on and uh, whether the power in that instance allowed a universal Uh, deployment of of regulation, whether that provision was intended for more in particularised application to particular people. And that continues to be a debate point uh, amongst people. So just to close, and and, and just a couple of observations just to close there, Um, I think we might be able to talk a little bit more about whether this regime and its deployment is compliant with the Bill of Rights. Uh, In principle, I think it is, but that's a complex assessment. Uh, And secondly, I think we, we, we might look forward to our generation three, because it's clear, I think, that generation one and two were a bit of a stopgap, and there's question marks, and I think uh, my colleague Eddie Clark will raise more of these, about whether the uh, the next set of rules need to have a stronger legal footing, legal hook, and, and, and more and, and, and more imbued with uh, principles of democracy, legitimacy, and oversight,
1: and so forth. So I'll leave it there. Kia ora. Right, thanks Dean. I think Nessa's going to pick up on some of those themes that Dean's, when she talks about the COVID-19 from a more criminal law or law enforcement perspective. So Nessa. Uh,
0: kia ora everyone and uh, thanks Jeff for, for bringing us together and, and thank you to our audience uh, who are joining in in this conversation in some way. Um, so there's so much to discuss to discuss and analyse about our current situation at level 4, um, but I suppose just listening to the PM's press conference this afternoon it's clear that even if we do transition out of this level 4 situation in the near future, I think the legal uh, issues and the operise, operation of these rules is only going to increase in complexity uh, in the coming weeks and months. And so. I'm going to uh, pick up I think on about four points um, so first I wanted to just pick up on some of Joel's points about constitutional um, traditions and theories and structures. Um, I want to uh, flesh out some of the points that Dean foreshadowed, talking about the operation of the policing powers at this time, and and particularly with the courts in their level four lockdown situation and the level three that may follow over the next couple of weeks. How are we ensuring that the safeguards built into our criminal justice system um, are present? Um, And then lastly, I wanted to just talk about my other area of research briefly, which is um, state surveillance. Um, so um, obviously in relation to contact tracing, et cetera, um, you know, there is a lot to speak about in relation to state surveillance and, and privacy. And I know my colleague Marcienne will be following me with some remarks about that as well. Um, So, uh, just to my first point about constitutional traditions and structures, so I suppose I've always operated as an immigrant to New Zealand in a cross-cultural constitutional framework. And so coming from a a jurisdiction with a written constitution um, and a much, I suppose, more explicit human rights protection. Um, it's been really interesting to follow my home jurisdiction and what's been happening with their version of the lockdown. And um, so obviously with the much more strict constitutional structure, there has had to be a explicit piece of legislation um, and the Health Preservation and Protection and Other Emergencies Measures Act 2020, um, which allied with another piece of legislation explicitly sets out Um, the regulations, powers, offences, jurisdiction etc that as Dean foreshadowed is being dealt with on a much more fluid basis um, in New Zealand at the moment. Um, And perhaps there is also a difference I think maybe in um, national attitudes to authority. So I found that New Zealanders tend to be fairly compliant with rules and Irish people are definitely more anti-authority and um, so particularly people from where i'm from in uh, ireland which is known as the rebel county so perhaps there are some differences on that front as well and um, but on a serious note i think ireland has uh, through long history and particularly in relation to the northern ireland um, troubles or terrorism there we have long experience with the use of emergency powers um, and one of the things that i would caution about is how emergency powers very quickly become normal operating procedures and we've seen that in Ireland in relation to things like the special criminal court and other criminal justice measures that were brought in at the time of um, a reaction to a terrorist emergency situation but quickly became part of the constitutional furniture. So I think that's something to look out for. Um, so the area of policing um, has obviously been very, very complex and as Dean foreshadowed, we had a number of generations of rules um, and we've seen a bit of increased transparency um, as we go, particularly around the release of the Level 4 guidelines um, a week or so back. Um, but for those that were following the Academic Response Committee uh, hearings this morning, so David Parker, although I think believe he was there in his capacity as Minister for the Environment, um, an attorney general question was was posed which was when would the crown law advice to the police be released so uh, he definitely stonewalled on that on the basis of legal professional privilege and i think that's something that my public law colleagues might be able to pick up in discussion around the validity of that But well, we know that in relation to the rule of law um, and transparency it's really important that citizens know the law um, and are clear on what they can do and what they can't do And as as I foreshadowed at the start, uh, as we move hopefully from level four to level three, um, at least the level four guidance has been relatively simple in terms of the requirement to stay at home. We're going to see a a huge level of complexity in relation to level three on who can be where at what times. And I think it's going to be very important that we get very clear and transparent um, information out there. And if it's confusing for us as legal scholars, um, you know, leading into my next point, uh, we've got to think about particular, or people with particular vulnerabilities who populate our criminal justice system to a great extent um, around them both getting clear advice on what is within and outside the law um, and in relation to how we police. Um, so we really need to ensure at this time, as ever, that uh, welfare and social issues are not criminalized. Um, so we've seen in the use a huge backlash against people who have been charged and found outside their bubbles uh, without due cause and so they were described in one of the pm's press conferences as being selfish and you know obviously vilified in the media but we know that in the general run of the criminal justice system it is often welfare issues that categorize these low-level antisocial behavior and um, so particularly things around obs- absconding and breach of bail can often be linked back to welfare issues. And and that leads into my next point about the courts usually being our safeguard in relation to um, how police and other enforcement powers are used, and that obviously when charges come to court the matters may may be examined and, and the courts have oversight. So in our level four lockdown, our our courts are closed, except for a a low range of very essential matters. Um, And then even those essential matters are being carried out remotely or over um, audiovisual link. And there's a huge amount of research that has been done um, on the use of AVL and, uh, you know, issues identified around lack of privacy and participation for um, defendants and suspects. And the lack of face-to-face contact can I think uh, cause or exacerbate a lot of those issues around um, vulnerable defendants and where these issues may not be picked up or people may not feel comfortable when they don't have a face-to-face, are comfortable in disclosure when they don't have a face-to-face consultation with their lawyer. Obviously as well, we've got our jury trials have been delayed until July at least because of the difficulties in impaneling jurors at this time. And so the issue of delay, I think, will become very prevalent. And this is particularly prevalent in the youth justice system, where for reasons of young people's sense of time, we have very strict rules around um, when family group conferences and other procedures and court procedures um, must take place within particular timeframes. And and not only do these uh, affect defendants, obviously they affect victims as well, because we know it's very um, traumatic for victims to have to wait for the result of their case and um, so i think those issues are, are going to become very prevalent in the next months so just to wrap up and i think to lead in nicely to my colleague Martienne who will follow me um, is the issue of surveillance so and um, this is a, a real research interest of mine and um i along with colleagues have a project at the moment about facial recognition um so we've, we've seen a lot of discussion around various um, methods of surveillance or tracking um, through electronic means or use of other information, which can have real uh, contribution to make in tracing people um, and making sure that we know clusters of, of COVID-19 cases. Um, but as I mentioned already, we can see emergency powers here quickly becoming normal operating procedures. So going back to what Joel said at the start about emergency measures having to be proportionate and temporal, Um, And I'd add reasonableness and transparency to that. And so we can see that some of these things that we are very likely to put in place in the near future as a response to COVID-19 would be very, very useful in terms of combating organized crime and other uh, criminal or even dissent, um, as we have seen uh, very readily in China. And so again, we just need to caution that something that may have a really proportionate and reasonable use in relation to this particular pandemic if it is to be used for other things, let's have a transparent legislative process around that. And we don't want to see these things become normal operating procedures. And so I'll hand over to Martian now, who will explore those privacy issues in a bit more detail.
4: Yeah, Koto, thank you, Nessa. Uh, thank you, everyone, for making this, this happen, this this seminar happen. I would like to cover briefly uh, two uh, two issues. Uh, first is that how our our privacy laws operate in uh, the state of emergence. So, what's the what's the privacy law? How will the privacy law changed in the in the time of COVID, because it, it there is some quite peculiar change which uh, enables the response and, and recovery from, from epidemics. And the second uh, point is about uh, contact tracing and the discussion around contact tracing, which is uh, developing right now in the moment. So uh, privacy is uh, or may be perceived as a, as a uh, sort of uh, something which we have to have to uh, surrender during the times of emergency because, as you can see, probably around the uh, effective response to, to to epidemics like this demands uh, collecting data about individuals, those who are who are sick and those who have been in, in or had been in contact with, with those who who have been recognized as having. Virus, uh, so uh, there are special rules about that. Uh, interestingly, we, we learned that uh, during uh, or after the, the Christchurch earthquakes, that that some previous rules have to change uh, during the emergencies, and uh, in 2013 uh, there was uh, issued a code of practice, privacy code of practice. Code of practice is a quite interesting, uh, legally interesting tool which uh, is uh, the code of practice are based on section 46 of, of Privacy Act 1993 and they uh, modify uh, the application of, of the regular privacy principles, so principles which which uh, regulate what are the obligations of, of, of agencies that collect and, and use personal and disclose personal data or personal information and usually those codes of practice uh, they uh, describe some particular areas like telecommunications or health services but there are some codes of practice which are triggered by by some events and that the code of practice uh, is called civil defense national emergencies information sharing code 2013 and it's triggered it gets into operation when the state of national emergency is announced and that, that happened as, as it was pointed out by by dean uh, so what's uh, what 's that it actually broader or, or broadens the discretion of, of uh, agencies that deals uh, with uh, response and recovery from uh, from epidemics or from uh, national emergencies and uh, It defines a permitted purpose which is about response and, and and recovery and it allows to collect use and disclose personal information in those those purposes that's a, a lot of discretion puts which is put down into into or onto the uh, the the state authorities that deal with emergencies, and sometimes, uh, well, it's uh, it's probably good because because oh, that's our experience, our Christchurch experience, because uh, those people know uh, the best how and when the, those those personal information have to be have to be uh, disclosed. The one important stop back measure is that that personal information cannot be. Released or, or disclosed to to news agencies, but besides that, uh, I mean, there is no other uh, problems in in for state authorities in collecting or using or disclosing the personal information. So a lot of discretion puts down on the uh, on the on the um, authorities. The question which I uh, encountered is whether that that there should be any any, for example, consent for. Uh, Controlling the location of people that are under quarantine and and do we need any, any, any consent from those individuals? According to that code, no. Uh, the question is what, uh, because this, this code is based on, uh, as, you, as, you, as I just uh, told you, on the state of national emergency. If the uh, trace, uh, contact tracing or, or, or we need some rules for, for collecting and, and disclosing personal information for longer term, which will exceed the the national emergency the legally legally uh, state of a national emergency maybe there will need to, there will be a need to uh, to modify the privacy rules in a different way second topic is, is contact tracing That's uh, quite interesting because it's well, of course it's not only new zealand by uh, but also uh, it, it happens around the world uh, we need to actually to to find close contacts of the people who have uh, the virus so this is some particular function and first thing is, is, is that not really that existing technological tools or existing data that are already collected by uh, either telecommunication companies or, or uh, companies that provide online services like Google, Apple or Facebook are not really fit for this, for this purpose because they, they usually collect location data not the data about the proximity about how often and and, and how long the 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 people uh, were close to one another which is actually what we what we want to want to collect and want to measure somehow the other peculiarity is that that we need to know this information with that that time delay so we need to know what had happened couple of, 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 of days ago with contacts or, or who were the person that were in contact with particular individual. So the, uh, actually you have to collect that, that data in advance and and release them when that, that person has, has, has positive test results probably. So that means that not every uh, technology is actually fit for the job. Uh, location data which are collected by telecom operators or, or by Apple, Google and so on are not really the uh, describing well and the problem or really answering the, the problem and uh, using them or processing them could or uh, result with, with, with uh, additional data which are not really necessary or a lot of unnecessary surveillance. So there is an idea about the app which is uh, based on, on the, on the close distance networks like Bluetooth. Uh, which will collect those data and can that that sort of, of app can have a, a privacy built-in So the data can be released only from for example only when uh, It is necessary. It don't have to be uh, collected in a central uh, central location uh, One uh, additional thing about that is quite interesting how to uh, if you if you look at the, at the big internet online players How they approach this this uh, this issues at the beginning of the COVID-19 uh, uh outbreak, uh, they were quiet, they were quiet because that uh, they were uh, sort of between the hard bit the rock and the hard place uh, because they had that lo- those location data and they would have to uh, release them if 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 they were asked by 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 state but they didn't want to be uh, perceived as a tool of surveillance so they they basically went quiet for quite a long time and when that that uh, ideas different ideas for for uh, contact tracing was were revealed suddenly uh, google and apple started to 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 implement their own solution for contact tracing which will be implemented into operating systems of android and 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 Apple iOS what's uh, so the science at the beginning and then willingness to 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 do it by themselves Therefore that their strategic option is either to leave it for the state to develop an app or do it by themselves and stay within the state to be a gatekeeper uh, An entity which controls Gathers collects data and controls how they are how they are used. So that's their uh, Their competitive uh, also advantage. There's another competitive advantage here with Facebook that because Facebook has a Natural uh, combative advantage of having data about contacts between people, their relationships between us. Apple and Google would like to probably use those data, or they think about using those data as as having of uh, some 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 means to address that. Thank you very much. I guess that's the time for, for Eddie. Yep.
1: Yeah, thanks Marsh and I suspect there's much more to be discussed about what actually happens in this privacy space with this app which on the one hand seems like a savior on the other hand could be a bit of a curse but I think we're going to need some good public process around what actually happens and Eddie's going to talk now about public process so Eddie uh,
5: thanks Jeff so I want to sort of zoom out and, and look at not any of the specifics of how The lockdown has been implemented, uh, not police uh, enforcement. Um, But the question of, of how we have accepted all of this happening to us. We're locked down under an executive order with significantly more intrusive police powers, potential privacy infringements, and parliament is not in session to monitor the use of that power. We're a democracy. We would not usually be okay with that. Um, Are we okay with that now? And if we are, why? I think mostly we have discarded the idea that sort of had its origin uh, back with Locke um, and picked up by Carl Schmitt rather notoriously in the 20th century, that the demands of the rule of law and democracy completely evaporate in an emergency. I think the better view is that even in an emergency, there remains some obligation for government to justify its exercises of power to the people it governs. This is broadly what distinguishes authoritarian regimes from genuinely democratic ones. The former can say, obey the lockdown rules because we say so and we are the government. The latter provides reasons convincing in both Uh, the factual justifications, and pointing to legal authority uh, for the rules to be obeyed. And it doesn't go without saying that that we have that culture of justification in a country. We see what you can contrast that with, a culture of authority. Uh, In a place like Turkmenistan, where I see it has been made illegal to say the word coronavirus in public, um, but more worryingly, in an EU country like Hungary, where extensive unilateral powers were given for emergency reasons, um, under the emergency provisions of the Constitution, as Joel talked about, were given by Parliament to the executive to deal with this pandemic. Uh, but one of the first uses uh, those powers were put to was to restrict transgender rights. That was what Viktor Orban thought the emergency situation justified. He says it's, that's what happens, and we all have to live with it. The difference between that sort of culture and a culture of justification is that under a legal culture of justification, legal power is a relationship between the state and the citizen. It's a two-way street rather than a one-way projection of authority from the state onto citizens. So the question is, given the lockdown, given the suspension of parliaments, what mechanisms do we have for ensuring that government justifies itself to us, that it discharges that burden of justification? We can't use the same forms we usually used to um, because there's a lockdown and and parliament's not sitting. But there are still some institutional safeguards happening. Some of this we see every day. Um, social media suggests that 1 p.m. has been renamed Ashley O'Clock. Um, we have these daily press briefings from officials, um, the Director General of Health, uh, police have been there, uh, senior ministers, the Prime Minister, turning up and answering questions. And the media is able to push and ask questions and ask for clarification. And we get pretty typical forms of accountability, both in terms of personal accountability. Um, We saw this last week and the week before, um, with the very important questions of, of David Clark's cycling routes and Simon Bridges' driving routes, respectively. Uh, but also structural things, um, pushing on implementation questions like the availability of personal protective equipment uh, and flu vaccines at primary health providers, um, and trying to get an idea of how we transition to different levels of the alert system. So that is, is still functioning. Specialist accountability institutions are also still functioning. The Auditor General, the Ombudsman's Office are still running. A lot of their work can be done remotely. I know investigations continue apace. um, And I'm aware there's some discussions about whether they can put prison inspectors, for example, into hazmat suits to send them into prisons or how they're going to continue those sort of functions. So those institutions are still there and still, to a slightly limited extent, functioning. What I think is most interesting, though, is our Parliament in miniature experiment um, with the Epidemic Response Committee. And I've watched a few sessions. Um, I think more people over the past two weeks have watched that than have watched all other select committees combined for the last five years. Um, it, it's it's functioned remarkably well. It was sort of a punt, suspending Parliament and, and just putting this on a committee. Um, The opposition, which has a majority on the committee, has done a very good, constructive job of pushing officials and ministers on implementation matters, on asking for clarification, on getting expert witnesses to give some real factual information. Um, I've been very impressed. Um, In general, the select committee structure is one of the best things about our parliamentary system, and I think that this special committee is really showing that off here. That said, we will need to recall Parliament at some point in the not-too-distant future. As Joel has said, emergencies are limited. The the degree to which you can continue it on emergency footing can't go forever. As Dean has pointed out, there's some, if not gaps, certainly thin patches in some of the legal authorisation for some of the methods uh, that have been taken to respond. And one of the only mechanisms that you can deal with that in is is by new legislation, which will require Parliament to sit. More generally, um, we need that oversight back in. The body that government has primarily required in our system to justify itself to is Parliament, uh, and we need it back. And I just saw today, Thursday, that the Business Committee is meeting tomorrow um, to decide if, how, and when Parliament can meet under the alert levels. It's interesting that the Prime Minister said that this is for the Business Committee and presumably the Speaker as well uh, to work out how that can happen and I would hope it's not an if, I think it needs to come back. Um, So the the question really should be how and when Parliament can meet uh, as we go from level four to level three uh, and then what it might look like at level three or at lower alert systems. So I think, in general, a reasonable job of of ensuring the government has been justifying itself to us for these extraordinary exercises of power, um, but we will need to get some business as usual back uh, before too long. It can't go on forever. Thanks. Back to you, Jeff.
1: Right, thanks, Eddie. So what we're going to do now is going to take about another ten minutes, just to have a uh, some questions which I'm going to put to the, the panel, and maybe they might have some interaction. But the first thing, just to just from my own perspective, I think these select committee hearings have been absolutely extraordinary in terms of the way they have been conducted, that they have been holding people to account, but they've been, until today, perhaps conducted in a very non-partisan way. And perhaps just to start the discussion, what happened today was was quite extraordinary, that the Attorney-General, who, as Nessa has said, was appearing in his capacity as Minister of the Environment, or maybe... Um, the Minister responsible for international trade, it was a sort of economics session today, was pressed very hard by Simon Bridges, who's the chair of the committee, and then by David Seymour to release the Crown Law advice that underpins all of the um, notices that have been issued and the enforcement of those notices. And the Attorney-General was very keen not to release that information. He claimed that it was privileged, meaning that, it was the result of advice from him, advice to him from his lawyers. So just like everybody else, he can rely on that privilege, and the Crown can rely on that privilege. But I just wondered if Dean particularly had—I so know Dean was looking at this issue—but earlier on, just to comment on that quickly, it's a bit peripheral, but it was kind of the big happening of today in terms of COVID legal land. Um, so, did you have a, some very quick comments on that, Dean?
3: Yeah, I I probably in the first instance wasn't. I didn't think it was unexpected to see the attorney general resist. Um, I guess the normative question is whether he, he he should have opened up that channel to give us a little bit more of the comfort for the legitimacy reasons that's been talked about. Um, that said, I think I think as he as he said before the committee, the point about the the legal hook that's being relied on is actually pretty simple and straightforward. Um, but as, as I said, I think it's a bit of a debate point. So there's, I don't think there's a degree of complexity in the in the advice, but I, I, um, I know some people suggested it might give us some comfort if we saw it. I guess if the committee decided to press the matter, I guess it's a question about whether the privilege can be used against to, to resist production from a um, committee of parliament. And, and McGee raises that possibility in his text on whether that's uh, legitimate or not, uh, or possible, whether it can be resisted on that basis, and leave it's a bit at large. I think there's some work to be done or things to be done around whether whether the um, the privilege can be asserted a bit against the House uh, itself, and I, I doubt it can be asserted on a categorical basis. I think the, the Minister might have to rely on a broader
1: and more nuanced sort of public interest question there. Okay, thanks Dean. Um, that was a bit more peripheral. Perhaps one of the central questions, about constitutional questions, that we might want to comment on is the suggestion that the elections be suspended or not held this year or not held when they're planned in September and as Joel was talking about one of the oddities that New Zealand finds itself in is not only aren't there provisions in our constitution about when we can declare an emergency but we don't really have a constitution full stop in sense of it being all written down and the only thing we really have is elections so I just wonder whether Joel wanted to comment about this discussion, which is percolating away about whether New Zealand should indeed hold its elections this year or what conditions perhaps would stop us hold, holding the
2: elections this year. Yes. Um, thanks, Jeff. Jeff it's, it's a complicated um, question, really. And I, I think it has, one can think about it sort of from three perspectives. One would be from a practical perspective about just sort of what are the what is the, what are the characteristics of this emergency that may make a an election um, difficult to to hold? In the past, of course, you would have, have uh, you have examples of countries, and including New Zealand, New Zealand, I think, in which which have postponed elections in the context of, of a world war, for example. Um, but then one may ask, you know, but is this is the nature of this emergency as serious as it is? Um, one that means that an election should not be held. And of course, the first thing that would come to mind is when an election involves um, people moving around, and that may and um, create more risk of contagion, and so on and so forth. Um, but I, I suspect there may be mechanisms um, to deal with that, um, ways of organizing the election, but rarely voting, or other mechanisms that may deal with those practical um, obstacles. The other way one could think about the questions from a sort of technical perspective you know what does the law say about um, when do you have to hold an election and what do you have to do if an unforeseen event occurs that you need to um, postpone it and uh, and so that's a legal question that would be re- that's re- re- regulated by, by the electoral um, act um, and of course if, if the election was not to be held this year then then um, I, assume, I suppose legislation would have to be passed. To the extent that the parliamentary term would have expired, but then I think that the, the most interesting aspect of the question, I suppose, is the normative one, which is but you know leaving those technical or practical issues aside, should there be an election in an emergency? And just to 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 go back um to to lock one of the interesting things of Locke's con- conception, which can be um subject to critique as 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 um Eddie mentioned earlier, is that um. Locke thought that um, the judge of whether um, the government was acting in the public good during an emergency was ultimately the people itself. And and I would, would think that in the context of, of a situation like this, when government is exercising powers that it didn't have when the previous election took place, um, an election is actually the way in which the New Zealand public would express its... Um, its, its agreement or, or express its uh, objections to the way the government has handled the crisis. So to the extent that those practical and technical issues are not an obstacle, I think that um, you know, from a normative, normative perspective, having an election um, this year is actually um, really, really important.
5: Can I chime in there from a much more prosaic perspective, uh, which is, uh, The election date has already been announced, but that actually has no legal meaning. Um, The the Prime Minister has declared when the election will be, um, but legally uh, we have until December uh, for the election to take place. So uh, even if, and this is looking a long way off, things are looking dicey in September, um, there's significantly more play before we get any talk about delaying or not having an election or doing anything extraordinary, um, there's more space to work with um, than simply what the Prime Minister has has said the election date was going to be before this crisis read its head.
1: Right, perhaps I might just ask, one thing's been missing a bit in the discussion so far is the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act, and obviously many of us feel that some of our, some of our rights have been taken away by being forced to stay at home with the people who also live in our homes. But perhaps the biggest impact is in the criminal justice system, as Ness has alluded to. And I suppose the question I have is, there are important rights that people have. Um, The right to a jury trial, for example. Jury trials have now been suspended in New Zealand until the end of July, I think it is. What do we do if things go much further on from that? Because on the other hand, people have a right to a jury trial. They, the accused, have a right to a trial and to have their legal case determined, but equally their victims have rights to have what's happened to them determined by a court. And we're already seeing some of that dynamic beginning to play out that victims, victim groups are, are saying this has a real cost on victims too, who don't get their, their own day in court or their own sense of closure as a result of pushing things on. So what do we do if things go on? And in fact, you can't hold jury trials say in August, it's because we're not quite clear that we're, we're clear of the virus then.
0: Um, yeah I, I can speak to that Jeff. Um, it's something that I think uh, a number of us have been considering. Um, as I alluded to in the youth justice system generally we're very strict around dismissing things for delay and um, but there's a big question as to usually things that are dismissed on the grounds of delay or a very particular situation to that case and so either police have dragged their heels or been inefficient or a report hasn't been available or there's been some administrative breakdown but this essentially is a global delay for everybody. So there is a question in terms of rights as to whether we just treat everything as having not been a a real breach of rights or um, do we look at the individual effect on people? But I think we're gonna have to very quickly look at alternatives for the reasons that you mentioned. I suppose it very much depends again on what level of alert we're at, and so we see that the uh, foreshadowing of the level three situation that was given to us or outlined to us today by the Prime Minister does allow um, small groups of people to gather and perhaps that there would be um, provision for some type of court process, um, albeit without Uh, the presence of the public but a sort of a transitionary uh, phase between the completely remote ABL and, and the full criminal trial because Uh, There are some things that we just can't put off. Like, I understand that there are quite a few homicide and other serious sentencings waiting, um, and both for the reasons of effects on those um, uh, defendants or offenders and the victims, um, we are going to have to put alternatives in place. And um, obviously, I understand there are a number of working groups across the justice sector, um, so I'm sure all these matters are being taken into account.
1: I think we're pretty much reaching the end of of, where we've where we can go today. And hopefully there are still some people still watching us. And we thank you for having um, spent the time listening to us. There's a lot more to discuss. Like I think, as I said before, there's a lot more to discuss in particular in relation to privacy and what's going to happen with these blessed apps and whether they can save us or whether they can actually be turned off once the pandemic goes. And as Nessa foretold, they are really useful things for other purposes. And some of us already have concerns about government use of cell phone data um, generally, and so one wonders what will happen in the future, but I suspect that's probably for another time. There's lots of other issues that can, can and will be discussed, and hopefully, some of the people here in this presentation will be leading those discussions, both maybe in this kind of forum or more generally. But I'd just like to thank everybody who took part in this, and um, thank you very much for giving you, your wisdom. Good fortune to you all, keep well, stay safe, um, and stay united in the fight against COVID-19. Cheers, everybody.
0: To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Corki School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music. From Tehera Walker, Victoria University of Wellington, haere rā.